for so many people, the God they don't believe in is a God I wouldn't believe in either. They think they're not believing in God, but the God they're not believing in is some ugly monster, you know, wherever they inherited. And I also find many Christians have an ugly picture of God. Your love and passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. It's just so important you have a beautiful picture of God, and God gives us the most beautiful picture we could have in the crucified Christ. Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. It's not uncommon these days to hear Christians say things like, let's take back America for God, or America needs to return to its Christian roots. There are others, though, who wonder just when was America a Christian nation? They ask, was it when we were killing millions of Indians in our conquest of North America, or maybe when we were kidnapping and enslaving millions of Africans? Tonight, I'm joined by Greg Boyd, senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the author of several books, including The Myth of a Christian Nation and The Myth of a Christian Religion. We'll be discussing the relationship between the Christian church and our government and our call to provide a foretaste of the perfectly just, peaceful, and loving government to come. Greg, welcome to Grace in 30. Thanks so much, Ed. It's it's an honor to be here. I'm going to read a quote, something you wrote in your book back in 2005. You said, I believe a significant segment of American evangelicalism is guilty of nationalistic and political idolatry. To a frightful degree, I think, evangelicals fuse the kingdom of God with a preferred vision of the kingdom of the world. What did you mean by that when you wrote that? Well, my perception that that to a large degree... um, uh, Christians have allowed themselves to become beholden to a political party and political ideologies and um, uh, to, to pretty much equate the gospel with, you know, this way of voting. Uh, and I just think that is a, a, is a completely wrong-headed, upside-down way of doing things. I, you know, the kingdom of God that we're called to represent is a kingdom in and of itself. It stands alone, and our loyal, primary loyalty is to be to that kingdom. And, and, and to try to reduce that kingdom into the categories of the world, into the political categories, and then, then make that sort of the litmus test for being a true Christian. I just think we're, we're, what happens, Ed, is we invite all of the toxic ideological polarity of the culture, we invite that right into the church. And, and whereas we should be uniting ourselves to just do what God has called us to do, sacrificing and serving you know, folks, uh, we end up getting divided along something that, that, that we should never be divided over. Now, you wrote that back in 2005. I, I have to believe that you believe that that's more relevant than ever today, correct? Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. Things have, I, I thought things were about as bad as they could be in 2005, but now they've gotten so much worse. I, I, I'm just saddened by the whole thing. I, I really am. And, and, you know, part of it, Ed, is that there's just so many downsides to this. When, you know, when, when like, when, when people... Uh, you know, we're ambassadors of Christ, and we're called here to share the love of Christ and by the beauty of the gospel to invite people in and join this kingdom. And, and, and we're to do that to all people, whatever their political ideology, whatever their nationality is, you know, it doesn't matter. And, and yet when the church gets identified with a political party, and there's a large part of it that's identified with the political right, but there's also folks that get identified with the political left. And, and you know, this is the true Christian way to vote. And when they see that, all it does is that now everybody who is, say, Democrat is not going to want anything to do with the gospel 
not because of anything with the gospel, but because they can't stand Republicans. <laughs> and now they're just identified with Republicans, or vice versa. And, and it, it, that, that ought never to be a stumbling block to people coming to Christ, I don't think. You know, I've, I've heard some people say that um, the sort of extreme support of evangelicals, very high percentage of support there for the current president, has done more to promote atheism than atheism. Uh, would, would you, you agree know, with I, that? I, 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 I don't know how you prove that sort of thing, but but it, it certainly would if... Uh, I, I know folks who have basically concluded, if that's how Christians think, you know, putting a womanizer, a groper in the White House, well, then I don't want anything to do with them. And, and I know some Christians who voted that way, and that's not... You know, they, they were holding their noses when they voted. They wanted to get the judicial court, and they were going with abortion. I understand all that. But, but you can't expect the people in the culture to understand that. And so if the gospel is identified with that position, well, then whatever animosity they have towards the position, they now have towards Christ, and, and that, is, that just ought to never to happen. You know, when G- Jesus called Matthew and Simon to be his disciples, and Matthew was the tax collector, and they were the conservatives of the conservatives, right? They were the arch-conservatives of the day. And the, tax, and the, 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 the zealots, um, they were the liberals of the liberals, in fact, we know that zealots sometimes would assassinate tax collectors because the one thing worse than a Roman is a person, a Jew, who's a traitor, who's working for the Romans and skimming off his own people in the process. So Jesus invites these two people, and they are as far as part as, as you know, communism and libertarianism could ever be. And, and yet we don't read a word in the Gospels about um, uh, Jesus weighing in on one side or the other. I'm sure they had some interesting campfire discussions, but the silence of the Gospels on Matthew and Simon, when we know, you know who these two people were and what they were standing for, it is, it's deafening. And what it says is that when you have Christ in common, even the, wild, the most disparate political opinions should not divide you. Uh, Christ should dwarf insignificance all of those things. One of the themes we hear over and over, I've, I've actually written a book, and, and uh, one of the chapters is called Strands of Grace, and, and it sort of highlights five, six, seven things that come up over and over and over. And one of the things in this program we try to bring on people to feature their grace stories is the notion of crossing a boundary, going, you know, getting close to people, getting proximate. I think that's what Brian Stevenson says in his book, Just Mercy. Getting people that are radically different than us, especially our enemies, and, and getting to know them and building a relationship and love and then watching, you know, these divisions and ungrace sort of fall apart. Do you agree with that? I mean, is there, how did people react? You gave a sermon series talking about this topic, and some of your, your church didn't respond well to what you were saying. <laughs> a few people here and there, maybe. Uh, no, when I first preached this uh, message called Crossing the Sword back in 2004, um, and it's what led to the writing of the book, The Myth of a Christian Nation. But, um, yeah, we had, about, we had about a third of our congregation walk out. Because um, uh, we're an evangelical church. We're now more Anabaptist than evangelical. But, but, uh, you know, we've, but we just never bought into the fusion of the church and the state. So we want to keep a clear distinction between the key that we're called to promote and that we're ambassadors of on the one hand, and then the kingdoms of the world that people will dispute over and fight over. We always want to keep that clear distinction. But because of the pressure that was being put on pastors in the 2004 election, I mean, it, it was unprecedented. Um, I felt, you know, and my people in my congregation were coming to me saying, why aren't you steering the flock on how they should vote and promoting the godly candidate and whatever? And so I just thought as a teaching moment to lay out a theology. There's a whole theology behind why we don't do that. And I laid it all out there. And, and yeah, some people, um, didn't, they didn't like it. 
um, they felt like, you know, it, 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 to them it felt like I wasn't being patriotic enough because I was saying about how, you know, our, our allegiance is to a kingdom that crosses nationalistic boundaries. And, and I don't think we should have uh, the call of the gospel has got to trump every national division and every racial division and every social economic division. And, and if, if, uh, and that means that, that you know, our allegiance to the state has got to be dwarfed in significance compared to our allegiance to the kingdom of God. And, and then, you know, somebody thought I was not being godly because they thought it's so simple. If, if you are pro-life, you got to vote for pro-life candidates. And, and to try to show folks that, the political sphere is a lot more complex than that. You know, it's a lot more complex. And, but it just seems like for some people, they just couldn't get that down. And they think that voting is like asking what flavor of ice cream do you like? Do you like chocolate? Then get chocolate. As though that's a, it, it's that simple. But, um, yeah, I, I, but you know what? I'm so glad I did it. We, we preached that, and we lost a lot of people, but it, it, it helped us. It defined us. We also gained others. And it was a defining moment in our, our church history. And I wouldn't take I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it over. I wouldn't do anything different. Um, but it was costly. Well, it seems that we look down on others. We seem to think that the sins of others are, are worse, and abortion is a horrible thing. Um, but, we, you know, the Scriptures are very clear. If you've sinned one sin, you're as guilty as a person who's broken all the law. And, yeah. and we seem to look down on other people. How do you how do you get around that? I mean, is there is there sort of a third option? You, you, I was listening to several of your talks before this interview, and, and part of the series, I think the third sermon you gave was was specifically focused on abortion. And, and it's amazing. You said some things that I was already thinking in my mind. I was like, wow, we we're trying to you know eighty percent of people I think all agree across the country that abortion is bad. And if that's the case, yeah. there's got to be a, there's got to be a third option, some way that we can say, look, we're going to stop you know, trying to change laws that nobody will will follow. And we're going to show the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And we're going to we're going to band together as a national body of Christ. And we're going to take care of people, people that are pregnant and having these children and whatever. Maybe share a little bit, you know, give us an example of how we could do that to, you know, follow the third option. Well, yeah, yeah. So and that, 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 that's the thing. And it's like I had read one study that showed that almost 90 percent of Americans agree on two points. Number one, the later, the, the fewer the abortions, the better. Uh, you know, no one's like pro-abortion. It, it's a tragedy. And then number two, the later the abortion, the worse. So, so the, the intuitively, whatever their, their philosophy is, they intuit that, okay, this is here, you know, coming on, taking on human personhood or whatever the categories are. But we're not working together to create a society where there are fewer abortions and where late-term abortions don't happen. And... The reason is because the two sides are absolutely locked in on polarization. The, the, the right to life is concerned that if you give an inch on, on allowing for contraceptives after, you know, the attachment of the, the zygote on the wall, well, then they're going to want to do late-term abortions. And the other group thinks, well, if we, get, if we, if we consider late-term abortions, they're going to want to get rid of IUDs and other you know, birth control things. And so everyone's stuck, and no one's getting what they want. So it could be. I'm just thinking it could be that. A politician who is, is wishy-washy on this, who is in the middle, but who can bring the two sides together, that might be the actual thing that would, that would, would, would actually reduce the, the abortion rate. But it just shows you that you can't be so simplistic as to think that, that voting is like asking what kind of chocolate do you like or what kind of ice cream do you like. Um, my point was this, that our call isn't to settle all the world's issues. Um, you know, I, I've got ideas about what would bring us together, but those are just my ideas. But the important thing is that we are called in the body of Christ 
to actually sacrifice for people who are in need, and one of them would be women who have unwanted pregnancies. And, and so the question we ought to be asking is, what can we do together? How can we sacrifice together to make it feasible for this lady to go full term? And for a baby then to be raised in a healthy environment, if she wants to keep the baby, how can we surround her with that? If she wants to give it up for adoption, how can we help her in that process? And to make it feasible, anyone can hold up a picket sign and scream. Uh, but who will bleed for the person who's actually in the hurting position? That's, that's, the, that's what the, the church ought to be asking. And I, I, so then, then, then uh, whatever good we do goes to the glory of God instead of Uncle Sam or some political party. And that's our job as ambassadors is to always be glorifying Christ. Let's just take a quick break here. Uh, I'll give you a chance to wet your whistle and do a station ID. Uh, you're listening to the Grace and 30 radio program on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. We're talking to Greg Boyd, lead pastor at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the author of several books, including The Myth of a Christian Nation. We're chatting about the Christian's primary call to live lives that represent the coming kingdom of God, a government characterized by sacrificial love, and perfect justice and peace. Boy, I can't wait for that. Um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that coming kingdom. I mean, Christ came. He sort of partially established the kingdom, and we're supposed to be providing a foretaste of that. Tell us, how, how do we go about doing that? What, what, are, what are we missing, and, and how do we go about providing a, a compelling, something that's really irresistible, taste of that coming kingdom? Well, that's, that's, the first thing is ask the right question, and you just ask it. Okay, that, that, that's, just to have that as the goal is a major achievement because it's so rare today. But, yeah, you know, we're called, in, in the New Testament, we're called first fruits, right? Um, and because in, in, in ancient Israel, that first fruits were the, was the harvest that, was, that ripened early. And so they would pick that har- harvest that ripened early, and then they consecrated it to God. Um, and, and in doing that, they're saying, we're going to trust you for the rest of the harvest uh, because we're not going to eat this on our own. We're going to give it to you. Um, and, and, we're, and we're putting on display what the harvest will look like when it's, when it's fully ripened. So also, we are to be a people that are ripened early, if you will. In a world of green bananas, we're supposed to be yellow. Mm-hmm. And, and to provide the world with a peekaboo into the direction of the world, where, the, where God's leading this world, what's going to look like when the kingdom fully comes, as much as possible. And, and what it's going to look like, of course, is, is like the love of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary, that, that perfect other-oriented, self-sacrificial love. But the Church is to be a giant version of that, uh, bleeding for the world through our sacrifice, uh, helping people out where they're at. Uh, you know, Jesus said, well, when you welcome in the, the homeless, you're we're doing it to me. When you clothe the naked, you're doing it to me. When you feed the hungry, you're doing it to me. So we're just supposed to be ministering as Jesus to Jesus <laughs> and and uh, putting on display God's love in the process. And the beauty of that is supposed to attract people into the kingdom. Um, and so I always tell people this. Look, if... if if a behavior or an attitude is not going to be present in heaven, then get rid of it now, because our job is to be a slice of heaven now. Uh, if there won't be any violence in heaven, then swear off violence now. Uh, and if there won't be any conditions on our love in heaven, then don't have any conditions now. Be loving your enemies. Be blessing those who persecute you. Um, I think we're supposed to put on display the diversity of the kingdom. Revelation says that people from every tribe and every tongue will come together. And the kings will be the glory. Will bring the glory of their nations into the kingdom. And so you mentioned earlier about uh, how this proximate, how important that is to be to be in contact with people that are different than you. You know, a love among homogeneous people is great, but a love among very diverse people is greater because it takes greater love. And that's the kind of love we're supposed to be putting on display. That's why Paul said, Galatians three twenty seven: In Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, bond 
slave free. It's in Christ. You're just in Christ. And the more we can put that on display, the better. Um, and so every church should be asking the question, what can we be doing to display God's love towards one another? Because, you know, Jesus said that we should be one even as he and the Father are one. And then to be displaying God's love to the world. Uh, instead of arguing about what government should do about the hungry, let's feed the hungry. Instead of arguing about what government should do about inner city schools, let's go fix up inner city schools. Whatever there is in your vicinity to serve, start serving it and show people a slice of heaven. That's, that's I think, the, 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 the call of an ambassador. Yeah, and I, I want to focus a little bit. You touched on it. You mentioned, you know, love your enemies, um, do good to those who hurt you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who, who hate you, hurt you. I always yeah. transpose those two. Bottom line is that I, I learned personally, you know, after a 20-some-year marriage, my wife left me, and, I, and we were enemies. We were in a bad condition. And I decided yeah. God revealed to me what he wanted me to do, and I, I said, I'm going to lay my life down for you for now. I'm going to more tit-for-tat. And the power of it— I mean, we have really insane power at our disposal. I mean, Ephesians says that you know we're able to, God is able through His mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more yeah. than we would ever dare to ask or imagine. That's the early NLT translation. But yeah. we, but nobody's using it. And the only reason I used it, I was a twenty-some year Christian. And I was a, a, just a complete bonehead in my own home. And the only thing that woke me up is when I started to lose something of incredible value. And and, and I woke up and said, Oh my God, I've got to. Look what I've done. I started focusing on me instead of blaming her all the time. Are, are you seeing any examples, whether it's in the political arena, you know, of, of Republicans stepping towards Democrats or vice versa, uh, you know, Republican Christians getting to know Democrats, or even in the abortion issue? Are you seeing any cases where people really are crossing the, the most, the biggest gap, which is the gap between us and our enemies? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm afraid I can't say I see very much of it happening in the political realm these days. Uh, there's a lot of the other stuff going on, but I, I, I wish I could give you some examples of that. Um, you know, I, I, in our church, it's, it's like um, the, how someone votes is just so inconsequential to us that that, that issue just never— I mean, people can talk about that, and, and, and they do it in loving ways, and usually with us it's kind of in, in funny ways, because in joking ways, because we just don't put that many eggs in that basket. You see, it's like, okay, that's— we all got opinions about that, but the question, the real important question is how do we, you and I, uh, live day by day in such a way that we're putting on display the, the love of God? It, it is the most powerful force in the universe. You know, Paul says that the cross is the power of God, and that just blows me away. Because all throughout history, people have ascribed to the gods or to God the power to control and the power to crush and the power to defeat and the power, you know, whatever. Because that's the kind of power we lust after. Well, here comes Paul, and he looks at the cross, and he says, yeah, to the world, the cross is foolishness and weakness, but to us, it is the wisdom and the power of God. The power of God is God's willingness to get crucified for a bunch of rebel, a rebel race of people who are crucifying him, because that's what we need him to do. And, and, and so the power of God is, is, is this, this love of God, and we've got that at our axis. Um, you know, Nothing will grow you more than making this disciplined choice. Take the person in your life who is the hardest for you to love, the person that you would love to hate the most, and commit to praying for them, genuinely praying for their well-being and blessing every day of your life. Uh, it, has, it, it is the only way, Ed, i found to keep above the undertow. You know, when you have a person who is maybe going after you, your reputation, or... Maybe going, 
they're, they're da- harming someone in your family because through marriage or whatever. And it is so hard to l- love that person and want the best for that person when they're, when they're digging a knife into you or into a loved one. And yet that is the only way to stay above their evil. The minute you get sucked into revenge and now you become like them, and this is what Paul says when he says, don't, be over, don't let evil overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. When we take on hatred and animosity, um, then, 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 then evil has overcome us. We're not sharing in their evil. And then if we respond in kind, we just justify them and whatever aggression they were doing towards us. But when you respond in love, like Paul says, give food to your, your enemy when they're hungry and something to drink when they're thirsty. When you respond in love, then the contrast, it highlights the wrongness of what they're doing. And, and they may even see that and, and, and repent. That's why Paul says, in, in being kind to the enemy, you're going to be pouring uh, coals of fire on their head. And that was, that was just an idiom for saying you're going to bring conviction on them. So the, this love, self-sacrificial love, can turn an enemy into a friend when all the bombs and bullets and laws and tanks and jets in the world could never do that. It's, With a gun to my head, you can't force me to love somebody. I, but, I, I love what you're saying. I have a term, I call it the most toxic person exercise. And I challenge people, now that I've learned over 10 years, I learned my relationship was restored with Diane and and I never went on a date, never had any relations with anybody. And we, you know, when she passed away from pancreatic cancer, I was with her and I had moved in with her. And uh, I mean, the power of it was beautiful. And I tell people, I challenge them. I says, a family member you've been avoiding for three years, is it someone at work you can't stand or they're actually trying to harm you? And take that person, not just pray for them, start serving them and make, you know, maybe someone's trying to get you fired and you start working to try to get them promoted. It's this sort of radical scandal. It's as Philip Yancey says, grace, it doesn't make sense to the world. But when, you, yep. but when you start doing it, it just blows people's minds. And, and that's what we should be about, right? I mean, do you, do you agree? Because yeah, it's neck snapping. And, uh, and you know, here's the thing. Jesus said, okay, so love your enemies, bless those who persecute, pray for those who despitefully use you. Um, that you may be children of your Father in heaven who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. So what he's saying there is we're to love the way God loves, and God loves the way the sun shines and the way the rain falls. You know, it, the sun doesn't discriminate who's going to get warm, and the rain doesn't discriminate on who's going to get wet. It just does what it does. So also we show that we're children of that God when we love the same way. And this is Jesus' criteria for being considered a child of God. You don't exact vengeance. You rather just keep on loving. And even if it costs you your life, it costs Jesus' life, and we're called to follow his example. Um, I find that it often starts painfully because you have to crucify that self that wants to be right, that wants to, that wants to get even, that wants to make him pay. You've got to crucify that self. But when you get past that and begin to actually, in obedience, agree with God, that that enemy... Uh, it was worth Jesus dying for, and therefore that enemy has unsurpassable worth. And then you bless them with that. And I find that invariably, eventually, you begin to get God's heart for that person. And, and you begin to see them not just, you know, they have a prequel, and there's reasons why they're doing what they're doing, and you begin to have compassion towards them, and it just expands your heart. I think it's the most important discipline in the world uh, to, to engage in. And the fact that we both agree with that just, you know, great minds think alike. That's what nah. I <laughs> I, I often tell the story that my, my wife, you know, when she first sued me, served me, did all these things to me, and I was caring for her, I was, you know, there was this tension of anger and but Jesus Christ in me wanting to, to you know, radically serve her. And a few years later, I had to take her to court. I lost a job, and 
and and she wouldn't give me relief from the alimony, which was substantial. And I remember sitting in the courtroom and looking across and seeing her. There were all these other couples slugging it out while we were waiting for our name to be called. And she was picking at her fingers and fretting. And, and I thought, oh, I just felt so bad for her. I wasn't angry. I wasn't anything. Yeah. I, just, I loved yeah. her and I didn't want to see her suffer. These were the things I no- normally used to do for her. But right, uh, right, right. so I get it. So we, we've only got yeah, two, two and a half more minutes uh, to go. Um, I want to make sure, is there sort of a number one thing that you share with Christians when you talk to them these days, maybe someone you come across, and, and as well as for people who are not followers of Christ? What are the things that are really on your heart these days to share? The number one thing that, one of my main passions is this, Ed, that I find that so many, for so many, for so many people, the God they don't believe in is a God I wouldn't believe in either. In fact, they, they think they're not believing in God, but the God they're not believing in is some ugly monster, you know, wherever they inherit it. And I also find many Christians have an ugly picture of God that, 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 um, that the, your love and passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. And, and um, it's just so important you have a beautiful picture of God, and God gives us the most beautiful picture we could have in the crucified Christ, that God looks like this. God's the kind of God. John says God is love. First John 4, 8, and then he says, here's how you know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So do the math. God is love. Love is the cross. God is cross-like love down the core of God's being. And when you get a glimpse of that, it begins to win your heart. You, you know, you, it, and I'm sure you discovered this. It wasn't that someone told you, you have to go and be nice to your wife. But when the love of God captures your heart, it gives you a new motivation where you start to want to do things. Like Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. And I don't think we can ever love our enemies the way we're supposed to love our enemies. And I don't think we're ever going to be serving the way we're supposed to be serving and keeping the kingdom distinct from all the kingdoms of the world. We won't be doing that until we're captivated by the love of God. And that that's our motivation, to put that love on display. And that's the prayer of my heart is that, that God will... I see God doing that all over the place, opening people's eyes to the truth that God really is this beautiful, praise God, and dare to believe it's true. If you see me, you will see the Father, Jesus says. I think that's the center of the kingdom right there. Ah, that's great. I, I'm all f- fond of telling people that so much I've learned in my journey that it's like uh, Peter and John, when they healed the beggar, they were jailed, they were set out, and the council said, hey, don't talk about Jesus anymore, and then we'll let you free. And it says they stood up and they said, we cannot help but tell about the wonderful things we've seen and heard. That right. should be every believer's life. And I'm yeah. so amped about this now. <laughs> I'm trying to yeah. just everyone yeah, I come across kind of share that with them and say, you, you know, every yeah. one of us can have this right now. So 15, 20 seconds, any other things you'd like to share? Well, you know, just 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 keep the kingdom holy. You know, the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That means that, like, keep your name, keep your character hallowed. Set apart, distinct, not mundane. The kingdom is, is keeping it apart from the politics of the world, all the culture of the world. The contrast is everything that we can show that we are offering people a different, an alternative way of living. Uh, uh, we live under a different king, uh, under a different kingdom, and, and um, you can be free from so much of the crap that you're carrying around. But it's the beauty of that hollow kingdom that is to be the attraction. And we just muck it up and we loop it all with our opinions about what politicians should be doing what and what. Go ahead and have your opinion, but but don't equate that with the gospel and keep the gospel front and center of everything you're about, not, 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 not the politics of the world. That will just pollute it. Excellent, Greg. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. This is Ed and Greg signing off from Grayson 30 
on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.